Last week we studied the doctrine of justification. Today we study how to apply it to our daily lives. Let's begin reading about Rick and Maggie. So whoever has the mic. They started their relationship with hope, joy, mutual affection, and respect, and with the belief that this could be a lifelong relationship, the lifelong relationship they both had longed for. It may be cliche, but Rick and Maggie met at church. They sat in the same row on the seats one Sunday and had a casual conversation. That was it. No sparks, no further plans. Two weeks later, to their surprise, they landed in the same small group. A few weeks later, they met for coffee. They talked and laughed, and before they knew it, two and a half hours had gone by. Rick and Maggie's first official date was at a Vietnamese restaurant because they had discovered they both were faux lovers. Is that what you lovers? The love of faux? <laughs> was one of the many things they discovered that they had in common. Picnics, movie nights, and trips to the shore became more and more regular. It wasn't long before they were inseparable and talking seriously after, uh, about getting married. They, both established, they were both established in the city, so no big move would be nece- necessary. The plan was that after they got married, Maggie would give up her appointment, apartment and move into Rick's place. From a distance, this seemed like everyone's dream marriage. But the couple that sat on the couch in my office had no joy. They looked like they were in more of a nightmare than a dream. They sat on separate ends of the couch like the other person wasn't there. Rick and Maggie looked sullen and defeated. There was no warmth between them. Rick talked angrily about their relationship like a man who had been deceived by a salesman into a bad deal. Maggie couldn't talk about it without crying. She was hurt like someone who had been betrayed. At home, they barely talked, and when they did, it was only about their schedules, bills, and home maintenance concerns. And and these brief conversations frequently dissolved into petty fights. Rick and Maggie, who once seemed to have so much in common, now lived in a constant state of cold war. Sunday morning worship and Wednesday evening small group were the only things they did together. In each situation, Rick and Maggie put on a happy face and gave non-answers to probing questions. As I listened to this couple unfold the sad state of their marriage, and as I witnessed all of the hurt and anger that was a result, I kept thinking that what this marriage lacked was the gospel. Does my response to this suffering couple seem out of touch, too theoretical, or too preachy to you? Are you able to envision how the gospel of the justifying grace of Jesus could pull this couple out of the mire that they were stuck in? Are you able to see how the truths of the righteous life and substitutionary death of Jesus change everything when it comes to how we think about ourselves and the way we think about and relate to others? Can you think clearly about how this gospel of grace changes the way we handle the sin, weakness, and failure that are the inescapable experience of every marriage? Are you able to apply the doctrine of justification to the realities of your everyday life?
The gospel, the gospel of justifying grace is not just a means of entrance into a relationship with God and a guarantee of eternity with him, but it is also a brand new culture to be lived right here, right now. The doctrine of justification changes everything. The problem is that thousands and thousands of Christians neither nor know or under, nor understand this. I think that in our teaching, preaching, counseling, and discipleship, we have often failed to trace out the implications of the nowism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In that office, as Rick and Maggie told their tale of marital woe, I listened to two people who did not know who they were and who they had very little and who had very little practical understanding of the magnitude of what they had been given in the justifying grace of God through his son, Jesus. Sure, there were some places where they needed better communication skills and problem-solving strategies, but their problems rooted at a much deeper level. The way they communicated and the way they approached problems were symptomatic of something profoundly missing in the way they thought about themselves and their relationship. How could a Christian marriage be so free of hope, so lacking in grace, and so marked by constant judgment? I want to answer this question by laying out the, new, the radical new life that is ours because of God's justifying mercies in Jesus. In order to do this, I'll use 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9 as a platform for understanding the new life that justifying grace provides for us. His divine power has granted us, granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence, by which he granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful nature. For this very reason, I make every effort to supplement Oh, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. This is the perfect passage for beginning to understand the right here, right now culture of the gospel that is ours because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Second Peter 1, 3 through 9 is a diagnostic passage. It is written to address and explain when something goes wrong in the life of believers. Here's the diagnosis. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, then they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. P. 
Peter is proposing that there are people who really do know the Lord and who have truly and who have truly been rescued, forgiven, and brought near by his grace, but whose lives are ineffective and unfruitful. Their lives are not producing the expected harvest of the fruit of faith. Rick and Maggie's marriage lifestyle was clearly ineffective and unfruitful. Whatever they were thinking and doing wasn't producing the good fruit of unity, love, understanding, peace, hope, and joy. Their marriage was so unfruitful that I remember thinking, there seems to be nothing Christian about this marriage. Now, Peter's diagnosis begs a question. How is it that a believer can have such an unfruitful life? The answer is in the passage. The people that Peter is addressing have ineffective and unfruitful lives because they lack qualities of character that produce good fruit. Peter lists these qualities, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. When these qualities shape your actions, reactions, and responses to the situations and relationships of your daily life, the result will be a harvest of good fruit. You may be thinking, I still don't understand what this has to do with the practical implications of the doctrine of justification. Stay tuned, because that connection is coming. This passage leads us to yet another question. Why do some Christians lack these essential character qualities? Know that you and I have no ability whatsoever to work these qualities into our hearts and then into our daily living. If godliness could be produced in our own strength, the cross of Jesus Christ would not have been necessary. These qualities only ever come to us by means of God's grace. They are the right here, right now gifts of God's grace to us. So what is the answer to the question? I have just spoke. What is the answer to the question I've just posed? It is found in the next verse. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what he, is cleansed, what he was cleansed for, from his former sins. Peter is proposing that people like Rick and Maggie have ineffective and unfruitful lives because they are blind to the radical provisions of grace that are their results that are theirs as a result of God's justifying mercies. Quite apart from anything they could achieve on their own, their sins have been forgiven, and with this forgiveness comes a warehouse of glorious grace that can change everything for them and their marriage. Here's how Peter talks about the riches of God's justifying mercies in Jesus. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What an incredible, glorious, mind-blowing, and hope-igniting statement. Let it sink in for a moment. As those who have been justified by grace, we now have every single thing we need to live a godly life between the already of our conversations and the not yet of our home going. We haven't just been forgiven. Forgiveness is a glorious thing. And we haven't just been accepted. God's acceptance is an amazing gift but we have also been richly supplied right here, right now. <clears throat> so here's what happens to people like Rick and Maggie. They forget or maybe never knew who they are and what they have been given in Christ. And because they do, they don't pursue everything that belongs to them in Christ. Because of this, they put their trust in things they shouldn't trust. They give away 
They give way to things that have the power to defeat. They hope in things that will fail them, and they settle in an ineffective and unfruitful life, and they repeat this pattern over and over again. I think there are thousands of Christians who are stuck in a gospel-blind lifestyle, and they don't know it. Some of them are angry. Some of them are questioning their faith. Some of them are hurting. Some of them are depressed, and some of them feel and some of them feel paralyzed, but all of them have lost the joy of their salvation because they are blind. They don't get up in the morning determined to make every effort to get everything that is theirs in Christ. This is one of the reasons many of our churches, our communities of faith, as communities of faith are ineffective and unproductive as well. So I want to unpack how the beautiful riches that are ours because of God's justifying grace in Jesus Christ change how we view ourselves, how we relate to others, and how we live in this broken world. God uses the truths of the doctrines of his word to change us, that is, to change how we think, what we desire, and how we live. Here are seven words that capture the lifestyle that is propelled by the doctrine of God's justifying grace. Let me jump in here. Uh, this chapter is so very important. I have divided it into a two-week study. Uh, three of the seven words that capture the lifestyle by the doctrine of God's justifying grace for this week and four of them for next week. Let's continue. So the, f <clears throat> the first one is humility. The doctrine of justification not only confronts me and you with how messed up we are, but it also confronts us with our complete inability to restore ourselves to any semblance of what we were meant to be. Humbly admitting the damage that sin has caused to you is like standing in front of a once beautiful but now decayed and broken down house with no understanding of how to restore it and no tools to do so. There we were, the destruction and decay of sin reaching to every part of our being with no ability to help ourselves. There we were, enemies of the one we were made to have relationship with, and there was nothing we could do to make peace with him. As Paul says, having no hope and without God in the world. The doctrine of justification devastates self-glory. It puts a hammer to human pride. It makes a mockery of self-righteousness and the self-aggrandizing, self-justifying, arguments that go with it. The truth destroys our pride and our power and our wisdom. It removes your ability to think that you have done something to be deserving. This truth requires you to confess that you have no power on your own to keep yourself from being without God and without hope. When you admit that what this doctrine says about you is true, humility results, and that is itself a gift of grace. Pride is a source of sin out of which so many other sins and their bad fruit grow. Pride crushes compassion and sympathy. Pride makes it very hard for you to be patient and understanding. Pride makes you entitled and demanding. Pride never produces a willingness to forgive. Pride makes you judgmental and condemning. Pride makes you far more concerned about the sin of others than you are about your own. Pride is the enemy of self-sacrificing love. You, you picky and easily irritated. Pride forces you to deny your wrongs and to shift blame to someone or something else. Pride makes it easier for you to complain than to give thanks. 
God knew what he was doing when he had me read this one. <laughs> proud people don't tend to be peacemakers. Proud people don't suffer well. Proud people don't need, don't tend to be generous. Proud people tend to think they deserve what is comfortable and tend to hate what is difficult. Proud people envy the blessings of others. Proud people resist confession and are defensive when confronted. Proud people find winning more attractive than loving. Proud people are better at division than unity and create more enemies than friends. Proud people are always keeping score and tend to hold on to wrongs. Proud people thrive on being noticed, getting respect, and receiving acclaim. Proud people tend to see themselves as deserving the spotlight and thrive when on center stage. Proud people take credit for what they couldn't have produced on their own. Proud people demand loyalty, but will forsake you when they are not getting what they want from you. Proud people have to be right and need to be in control. Pride never has a good harvest. Much of the sin and bad fruit in our lives grows out of the soil of our pride. So it is a grace to understand what the doctrine of justification says about you, who you were, what you deserved, and what your life would have been apart from God's justifying mercies. You can't say your hope in life and death is justifying grace and be proud and boastful at the same time. Pride crushes a believer's fruitfulness. One of the sweetest, most life-transforming fruits of the doctrine of justification is humility. In their marriage, Rick and Maggie fit Peter's description, nearsighted and blind. They lived forgetfully, failing to remember the humbling truth that justifying grace had rescued them, not only from God's wrath, but also from themselves. Because they forgot who they were and what they had been given, pride, subtle and not so subtle, infected every aspect of their marriage. Rick was self-righteous, seldom humbly admitting that he was wrong. Maggie was entitled and demanding, always finding a way to keep her desires front and center. For them, decision-making was a war for control. Forgetting God's grace, they seldom gave one another grace. Forgetting God's forgiveness, they failed to see the restoration beauty of confession and forgiveness. Here were two people who said they believed the gospel, but there was no gospel lifestyle in their marriage. You cannot have a healthy marriage without humility. You cannot be a faithful, loving parent without humility. You cannot be an obedient child without humility. You cannot be a fruitful leader without humility. You cannot be a good neighbor, good citizen, or good worker without humility. Humility is one of the doctrine of justification's good fruits. Here again, we are reminded that God gave us the truth of his word, not just to inform us, but more importantly, to transform us. Are you nearsighted and blind also? And the question, how has the truth of your justification produced in you the fruit of humility? It's almost like a trick question, because if you say you've got humility, don't you not have, aren't you failing in humility? <laughs> oh, my goodness. As we were reading that uh, next to last paragraph there, I was reminded of the many times that my wife has given me grace uh, to forgive me for the, the sins that I uh, committed against her. And without that grace, um, I would be totally miserable.
Yeah, justification is where I give God my sin and he gives me his righteousness. And I don't know if that doesn't humble you. I don't know what will. Paul, I'm thinking through the, the course of uh, my marriage and knowing that the conversations that Lori and I have when uh, one is offended or is um, or, or offense is a potential, like it's hanging out there, <laughs> and uh, um, there's that opportunity, that moment to kind of dig in and not give ground, not being willing to, to give ground in these stupid small little ways that we do that. And um, I'm able to observe over time what God has done in both of us being more willing to acknowledge I could be wrong without saying these overt, like, hey, I could be wrong. Like, you, you just, your body language, the things you say, the tone you use that communicates, hey, um, you know, I'm not going to try to keep my leverage and giving that up. Um, by communicating with love and, and, and communicating some humility and that the Lord has done that. <laughs> we get no credit for it. The Lord has um, created a healthier marriage for us because of our willingness to, to be humble in, the, in the, little, the little interactions. I was just going to uh, immediately thought of the scripture Ephesians 2. Um, after talking and describing through us and our nature and um, deserving of wrath, talking about being justified, it's then in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Um, and so I think when I think of boasting and I think of just, or, uh, humility and justification, uh, I think the first, uh, what is it, 10 verses or so, yeah, first 10 verses of Ephesians 2 uh, is a good passage. Okay, let's uh, move right along, and whoever's next to read on gratitude. It's altogether, before, before you start, it's altogether possible we're not going to finish again today, but uh, that's okay because you have it to read when you go home. Sin is self-centered. It causes us to be self-focused, self-absorbed, and self-obsessed. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul says that Jesus came so that we would no longer live for ourselves. Because sin is self-centered, complaint is more natural than to, uh, for us than gratitude. Here again, the doctrine of justification is transformative. One of the beautiful fruits of this doctrine for us is, is a profound sense of gratitude. This is not a gratitude because my dad, my day is going well, because, my, because people like me, because I am healthy, because I am affluent, because I am successful, because I have a big stake in front of me, or because my children don't publicly embarrass me. No, this is gratitude that transcends human situations, locations, and relationships. It is a gratitude that is not weakened by difficulty. This gratitude doesn't rise and fall with every rough patch in life. You know that you 
are living out the gospel of justification by grace through faith, when you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, my marriage isn't all it could be, I have concerns about my children, and my finances worry me at time, but I am completely forgiven and unfailingly and eternally loved. It's a love I don't deserve and could not have earned. Jesus lived and died so that I would have this love, even on my very worst day, I am loved. Let yourself, let your heart be filled with gratitude that because of what Christ did, you are an adopted son or daughter of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Stop to consider the reality that a holy God doesn't look on you as a judge, but with the loving eyes of a father, because Jesus took your judgment on himself. How can you not be filled with life-shaping thankfulness? Gratitude is a beautiful thing. You become grateful when you come to understand that you are and um, understand that who you are and what you have is not about what you have done, but what has been done for you. You know that the richest things in your life are not there because you are an achiever, but because by grace you are a receiver. Gratitude means you understand that your biggest blessings are gifts of love and not wages that you've earned. Gratitude is knowing that your biggest problem, sin, has been dealt with by the sacrificial generosity of another. Gratitude looks up and remembers. People who are grateful for God's redeeming love tend to be joyful people. You won't find much joy in complainers. Grateful people, remembering their own need of rescue, tend to be kind, compassionate, sympathetic, and understanding. Grateful people remember that God, remember what God has given them, and then, then in turn are generous, willing to make sacrifices in the service of others. People who carry gratitude for God's forgiveness with them through life tend to be willing to forgive, reconcile, and restore. People who remember that they are the recipients of God's patient mercy tend then to be patient and merciful. People who are grateful for God's amazing grace in Christ tend to be willing to give grace to others. You can't put a value on the transformative power of gratitude, and you can't properly reflect on the doctrine of justification without walking away with a, heart of overflow, with a heart overflowing with it. Gone are the days of, I earned it, I deserve it, so I will boast about it. The doctrine of justification demolishes the old, proud human uh, meritocracy with all of its self-congratulatory delusions of grandeur. Paul says, what do you have that you do not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Vertical gratitude transforms not only your heart, but also how you respond in all your horizontal situations and relationships. Sadly, Rick and Maggie didn't live in the light of Paul's words. Vertical gratitude did not protect and shape their marriage. Their conversations were colored by complaint. Rick wasn't patient and failed to respond to Maggie's weaknesses and failures with mercy. Maggie approached her relationship to Rick as one who felt deserving of rather than rather than grateful for his love. She regularly threw up to Rick all the things that she did for him while she reminded him of all the exhausting, discouraging, burdensome, 
and gospel-free way of living. Like every other child of God, Rick and Maggie had eternal reasons to be grateful. Gratitude would have had transformed their relationship, but they had forgotten who they were and what they had been given in the justifying mercies of their Lord. The question is, how has vertical gratitude transformed your heart and the way you respond to the situations, locations, and relationships of your daily life? That's a mouthful. One thing that I've learned with having uh, Prince and Aaliyah with us is like every time I get like frustrated, which is a smokescreen for angry, uh, so it's sinful. And uh, um, every time that happens, I remind myself, wait, hold up. Like God is slow to anger. He's a loving father. You need to be grateful for that and gracious to the kids when, you know, you know, anyway, so I just remember, remembering, you know, that, that, like, reminding myself of how gracious he's been, how forgiving he's been over and over and over again, and slow to anger, and how I need to follow him in that, so. One of the things about being a parent is you, you learn very quickly that you're learning a lot from your children. I know. <laughs> Learning to be grateful to God for His many ways in our lives, uh, or many works in, in my life. Um, I mean, this is something I'm continually learning, and often I fail to apply. And, um, but when I do this, I mean, it, it just it helps put help me to realize again that um, that I am so dependent upon God, and um, helps me to praise and worship Him and get the focus off myself. And, um, you know, I don't know. I just, it seems like every day there's a struggle with self-centeredness and, um, and the, the trouble that that brings, you know, self-reliance. Um, the new job I'm in, I, I face it all the time. And as soon as I turn to God and I trust in him and, and praise him and depend on him, I see his work all around me. So, When I give thanks to God, I can't help, you know, in a difficult situation or with um, relationships, I can't help but going back to acknowledging that God is sovereign in all things. And when I realize that, thank you, God, that you know about the situation, you're in control, you have orchestrated this, thank you. It makes it easier for me to um, look with more grace on others. Okay, let's move along to Freedom. Who's reading next? No, this must be. <laughs> <laughs> like a Statue of Liberty. You needed that in there. Freedom. Here's another beautiful, heart-liberating, life-changing, and joy-producing fruit of the doctrine of justification. Justification by grace through faith really does set you free. 
The question is, do you carry that freedom into the everyday spaces of your life? The justifying mercies of Christ set you free from the burdens of the law. Since Jesus perfectly measured up to every requirement of the law, we now have peace with God and full access to relationship with him, even though in this life we will never measure up. Yes, we should determine to obey and we should resist sin, but we are freed from doing either as a means of achieving acceptance with God. Justifying grace frees you from the paralyzing burden of guilt. No longer do we have to live in regret, dragging the heavy load of our past sins into the present and future. No longer do we have to hide in fear of the hammer of God's anger coming down on us. No longer do we have to do the burdensome work of denying, minimizing, and hiding our sin, working to make our sin feel in our hearts as less than sinful. No longer do we have to defend our righteousness when people near us lovingly confront us with wrong. Redeeming grace has freed us from these burdens. No longer do we have to carry the burden of shame. Jesus shame. I'm sorry, Jesus shamed shame on the cross so that we would no longer live in bondage to it. In the eyes of the one with whom it eternally matters, we are no longer stained, no longer dirty, no longer scarred by sin. Because of justifying grace, our record is spotless and we are righteous in God's eyes. We don't have to go slump-backed through life protecting ourselves from onlookers as if we are rejected, unwanted, and unworthy. We are children of the King. His door is open, and we are welcomed. Shame died on the cross of Jesus Christ. Why should we let it rule us any longer? Justifying grace frees us from the burden of fear. Grace means we are no longer enemies of God, but his children. Grace means God is for us, and if God is for us, who can stand against us? Justifying grace unleashes on us an inexhaustible warehouse of divine blessings. Justifying grace means we are never left alone, never left to our own little bag of wisdom and strength, and never left to the few things we can control. Justifying grace means that God exercises his sovereign power not only for his glory, but for our eternal welfare as well. Justifying grace means we live under the unshakable security of God's provision and protection. No matter where we are, no matter who we are with, and no matter what we are facing, the Lord Almighty is with us. Justifying grace means we awake every morning to new mercies that are form-fit for what we deal with that day. Justifying mercies means that everything that would confound and confuse us is fully understood by and lives under the sovereign management of our Savior. Justifying grace ushers us out of the darkness of fear into the light and rest of the Father's care, where peace of heart is found and anxiety no longer haunts us. Freedom from the bondage of guilt, shame, and fear is ours in the justifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We carry these burdens no longer because, as an act of justifying grace, Jesus has lifted them off our shoulders. There is no marital infection more problematic for Rick and Maggie than fear. Fear of being the guilty one and the shaming that would follow motivated so much of their, inter- of their interactions with one another. They knew the power of inflicting guilt, and they were used to the sting of shame. 
One thing they shared in common was the fear of the next time the finger would be pointed at them and the power that would give the other person. You know you have lost sight of the gospel of God's grace and that your relationship is in trouble when fear has become a more powerful motivator than hope. You know your relationship is in trouble when hiding and defending are more regular than honesty and transparency. Rick and Maggie were tired of the cycle of fear, guilt, and shame, but they were blind to the fact that they were the ones keeping it going. They were blind to the fact that, in God's justifying mercies, they had been given everything they needed to live with one another in a very different way. And the question here is, how much of your life is motivated by fear? Where it really matters, how are you living in the freedom that is yours because you are a recipient of the blessings of justifying grace? Um, I think of, um, like right now, I'm, I'm trying to help Ezra um, ride like different scooters and different things he's gotten, um, uh, and like he's learning to do some athletic things. And of course, anytime you ride a bike or a scooter, your instinct is to stare like straight at your feet or at the crack or at the rock you're about to hit that's going to send you off. And you're constantly trying to eyes up, eyes up, look down the road, and, and you'll go. Because if you're thinking, don't, you know, don't hit the rock, don't hit the rock, don't hit the rock, you're going to hit the rock. And um, to me, this is where it's fear of sin. Um, if I'm constantly, I find myself being afraid of sin rather than afraid of God and looking to God as the solution to sin. Instead, it's like there are times where I know I'm going in particular, whether it's work or something with the kids, a combative situation or something where I know I've failed the 200 times before this moment and I'm afraid of failing again or afraid of like the sin rather than the like the freedom that comes from focusing on God and looking at the right thing down the horizon and and just not even the opportunity for sin is just taken away because you just walk past it's not even focused on whereas if if I tell myself don't get angry don't get angry don't get angry you know with the kids or like try to prep yourself it just um, inevitably I end up getting angry and sinning. So I think when I, um, a hate of sin is a good thing, but if there are times where I can focus on, on sin enough to where I lose sight of, of God, who is the only thing that could actually keep me from the sin itself. I would say uh, for me, um, anxiety Responding to a stressful situation, a tribulation, a trouble in the day, a trial, when I recognize that I'm manifesting anxiety, it's the, that's the word that is most clearly fear. And I recognize that that controlling fear robs me of the ability to walk in freedom that day because I'm so focused on getting through the stresses that are overwhelming and bringing about the anxiety. So it's like it's a vicious cycle, and unless myself or my wife, you know, lovingly gives me a reminder of the freedom I have in Christ, she may not use that exact word, I find myself in that death spiral. It's amazing how, how you can get in it and get, like he talked about earlier, blinded. You, you, you walk blinded by the reality of God's blessing to 
remind us of the freedom we have because of the sovereignty he has over all situations. We got Gerald over here. I don't know if it's just an American thing or if it's just my, my you know, my upbringing, but um, it's real easy for me when I think about fear. I get motivated by the fear of failure, and and um, I think that um, just recognizing that failure in and of itself is not necessarily sin, and um, and just being able to live in that and recognize that when Christ sees me, he he sees, you know, he sees, uh, you know, he sees a robe of righteousness. He sees who I am um, because of what he's done for me. So um, if I can get my focus around, you know, away from that fear, that's a, that's a huge comfort when I'm able to do that. Doesn't happen too often, but. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for sharing what you shared a second ago, and Gerald, you as well. Um, Nick and I struggle with both struggle with anxiety um, and you know I, there's something about um, anxious fear and just like other sins that's kind of a there's a sick pleasure in it you know it's that longing for what was before longing to be back in Egypt when what was comfortable and just kind of sitting there you know C.S. Lewis calls this you know I can't remember the exact quotation from your Christianity but something like you know, we're far too easily pleased. We'd rather, you know, play in the mud uh, and, and be of our sin and our past than to apprehend and accept and, and revel in the, the glorious inheritance of ours in Christ and, and fix our eyes on him, right? And receive what he has for us when we trust in him, when we put our hope in him, right? Turn away from fear and hope in him. Um, I mean, you know, he is... He is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Um, there is no truth, goodness, and beauty that can come to us apart from Him, right? Um, that, I can't remember the verse, but it says, you know, all good gifts come down from the Father of lights um, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, right? Why do we think? What is this backwards thing in our mind that thinks we can find it somewhere else, that we can find the solution somewhere else, right? Ah, so I, you know, I just want to resonate with all the people who struggle with that this morning, because I do too. And wow, let's just fix our eyes on the Lord, put our hope in and praise Him, be grateful to Him, depend on Him, and, and trust that He will save us. Gerald, I just wanted to say too on the failure thing, I think part of the beauty of, of recognizing or having a clearer view of who God is and the fact that he's in control and that what you're facing is his is that it doesn't remove the uh, likelihood of the failure. You still may fail, but it changes entirely your perspective about failing, which is my identity in Christ is no less when I fail at this thing um, than, if, than if I don't, if I succeed wildly, you know. Yeah, so... Uh, that's where the real comfort and the real peace is, whether it's an anxiety or the, or the failure. It, it puts the failure in its right place. <laughs> it doesn't magically make it all go away. It just puts it where it belongs. You know. Well, let's close it off for tonight. today. Uh, next week, we will study the remainder of Chapter 18.
which the words which we cover next week are identity, potential, values, and defense. Now let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, speak to our hearts and help us to apply in our own lives what we have learned today. Mold us and make us the servants you want us to be. Teach us humility, gratitude, and freedom as defined in this lesson. We want to reflect you in our lives so that our unbelieving family members and friends will see you clearly. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.